Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager, and my guest today is Dr. Michael Angs. He's a retired educator at Pima Community College and also Northern Arizona University. He's been studying history since he was 14. In 1983, he turned his attention to the study of people of African descent in Mexico and the Southwest. Dr. Michael Angs has been a guest here on 30 Minutes Before, and every time he comes, he always brings us a great story about people of this region. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. I appreciate being here. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for coming. What are we going to learn about today? Well, this this is a very exciting time for African-American history and African history in Arizona because this is a watershed period in which the three years, 2016, 2017, 2018, are high marks for African-American participation in the history of Arizona. There's really exciting stories evolving in the next couple of years uh, and as of last year because we're, one, celebrating the 150th anniversary of the 10th Cavalry uh, and the Buffalo Soldiers, uh, celebrations all over the country and here in Arizona as well to celebrate that because they served here probably starting about 1883. And then it's also the 100th year of the punitive expedition when General Pershing marched into Mexico to chase Pancho Villa, and the 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers were with him at the time. So lots of stories, lots of exciting action in the stories, and uh, just a really great time for people who are interested in African-American history here in Arizona. One of the things I think that's, that's really interesting about this particular period is the question that was being asked at this particular time. Remember, if the Buffalo Soldiers arrived here in 1883, one of the things that happened shortly thereafter in the late 1890s was the Mexican-American War. And in fighting that war and prior to that, a lot of the more sophisticated communities of African-Americans in the United States were starting to ask the question, whether or not black people should even fight for this country when they're being treated so badly. I mean, there were lynchings going on on a daily basis, the establishment of organizations like the NAACP to prevent lynchings from occurring, uh, the persecution of black people throughout the South and in other parts of the nation. And so the question in large newspapers of African-American origin in Atlanta, Philadelphia, places like that was, why are we fighting other people of color especially in wars like the Spanish-American War, when we're not being treated very well in this country. And if you look at the question, it's very relevant to our present time because some of the same dynamics are acting themselves out now. Uh, the phrase that I found that best describes it is indemnity. Indemnity is described by the uh, Barron's Law Dictionary as the obligation or duty of one person to protect another against harm, loss, or damage, with an assumption that such protection of one person for another will result in compensation or gratitude. And throughout history, what we've seen ever since the Civil War is though African Americans have fought bravely for this country, the gratitude is a long time in coming. And this is perfectly exemplified in the history of Arizona during the 1916, 1917, and 1918 period. When the Buffalo Soldiers coming out of Fort Huachuca were some of the only protection we had against what was occurring in Mexico. Remember, 1910, the Mexican Revolution began. And during the revolution, uh, there was chaos throughout Mexico. And yet, until 1916, 
none of it had actually slipped over into the border. It's not that Americans were not being killed, because remember there was an incident in Mexico, in uh, Chihuahua, where mining engineers of the Cusi Mining Company were massacred by uh, troops, uh, possibly under Pancho Villa, and um, 17 people were killed. But up until that time, there were no incursions across the border. And then in 1916, March of 1916, Pancho Villa invaded Columbus, New Mexico, killing 17 civilians and wounding several others. And it was just an incident that could not be ignored by the American government. So President Woodrow Wilson, who had just been elected, decided that he needed to send a message to Mexico and the rebels in Mexico by sending in a punitive force, which is what but why they call it the punitive expedition, to chase down Pancho Villa. Now, the Secretary of State at the time said, you know, do you really want to declare war against one person? Uh, what, what if they leave and go to Central America? What are you going to do then? And also at that time, although the United States wasn't in it, uh, World War I was happening. Exactly. That's a very interesting side story because, remember, Woodrow Wilson did not want to go to war in Europe. And what the Germans were doing was sending provocateurs to Mexico to stir up trouble with the Mexicans to distract America from going to the war in Europe. And Wilson was very, very reticent to do that. So this side story of how the Germans and the Mexicans were colluding, the chaos in Mexico, there were several revolutionary leaders who were fighting against each other and against the Carranza or the Huerta government in Mexico during this particular period of time. But really, from 1910, with the start of the revolution, up until 1916, there had never been a serious incident on this side of the border until that invasion of Columbus, New Mexico in January of 1916. So it kicks off a whole series of events in the history of Arizona in which the 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers, the 25th Infantry Buffalo Soldiers, and other units of Anglo soldiers were involved in a battle in Mexico, which is part of our history here in Arizona. And what I find exciting about it is that there was just so much chaos going on at the time that you really have to tell the story in almost four different parts. And the first part, really, is goes back to before the revolution, because one of the first people of the Buffalo Soldiers to come to Arizona was the first black graduate of West Point. His name was Henry O. Flipper. He was the first graduate of West Point. And he came here after being discharged from the military for actions unbecoming an officer, probably trumped up charges because he was later pardoned by the Clinton administration many, many years later. And because of his experience as an engineer and his fluency in Spanish, he became very valuable here on the border. He actually was responsible for going to Mexico City and helping look up Spanish documents that prove that the present city of Nogales, Arizona, was in fact not a part of a larger Spanish land grant, but private land that could be incorporated into a city. And the people of Nogales are forever thankful because otherwise that would have become a large ranch instead of the municipality that you see now. And Flipper was, was lauded by all the citizens of Nogales for his work there. But what happened subsequently that relates to our story is that Flipper, though he had moved back to the Midwest because he was getting old and infirmed at the time, was accused of fighting for Pancho Villa. 
paper stories in newspapers in this area described a black man who was directing artillery for Pancho Villa. And they suspected that no black person had the competence to direct artillery fire unless he had been military trained. And Flipper's name came up as one of the persons. So here we have the first black graduate of West Point, who probably wasn't even in the state any longer, being accused of riding with Pancho Villa. And that sets off a whole series of stories in which African Americans are involved in protection of the border. And going back to our theme of indemnity, what we see here in this particular story is very modern relevance because what you have is black people protecting others against a threat without gratitude or support. And we see that a lot in our modern day times. Uh, I work a lot with law enforcement and have trained law enforcement throughout my career at PME Community College. And what I'm finding is that African-American and other law enforcement officers are suffering from the same thing. We as a people do not support them until we need them. And then when we need them, then we say you need to perform your duties at this time in a violent, violent confrontation of some sort. And what we're seeing is the same thing was occurring back in 1916, 1917, and 1918, where you had Buffalo soldiers stationed at Fort Huachuca, miles away from anybody else because the people here in Arizona didn't want to have anything to do with African Americans pretty much. And yet they were responsible for protecting the same people against revolutionaries coming across the border uh, as they did in Columbus, New Mexico. And they did a very good job of that from 1910 through 1916. And then the punitive expedition was established when Pershing was, was ordered to go into Mexico. And as a consequence, one of the units that was first called in was the uh, 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers. They rode 250 miles from Fort Huachuca to area close to Nogales, Arizona. And then in April of that year, rode into Mexico. And uh, the person in charge of them at the time, who had been the military attache of Liberia, Colonel Charles Young was basically, uh, he wasn't a colonel at that particular time, but he was the third black graduate of West Point. Now, for your listeners, they have to remember what a difficult time this was for a person like Charles Young and earlier for Henry Flipper, because remember, while they were at West Point, they were under extreme pressure because nobody would talk to them unless absolutely necessary. They were being shunned by all their classmates. And I challenge your listeners to just think about, you know, many of us have been in a school, whether it be a high school or college, for four years, two years, and to have nobody talk to you, nobody interact with you during that whole period of time must have been a horrific. It's like uh, solitary confinement. And yet both Flipper and Young after him were successful in graduating from West Point. Young was assigned to many different duties, but in the spring of uh, 19... 16, he was sent to the borderlands here in Arizona to ride with the 10th Cavalry into Mexico and pursue Pancho Villa. Many of your listeners may remember the punitive expedition. There's some really good books, one by the grandson, I believe, of Dwight D. Eisenhower, the president and allied commander in World War II, John S. D. Eisenhower, called The Intervention, is an excellent text on the punitive expedition and the role that the 10th Cavalry and other black units would have had in that particular fray. There's an earlier book that's probably just as interesting in terms of its reading that takes a slightly different particular point of view, written by Herbert Malloy Mason, Jr., 
The Great Pursuit. And then, of course, we have a more recent book that came out called Black Officer in a Buffalo Soldier Regiment by Brian Shellam. And this is about the life and times of Charles Young. And Charles Young was an amazing person because he spoke many languages. He played the violin and piano to entertain himself because of long periods of isolation. Because even after he reached here in Arizona, many of his fellow officers, all of whom were white, would not speak to him or not treat him with respect, though he had some good relationships with other officers. His bravery really can't be questioned. Uh, in the book Black Officer, which I just mentioned, there's a passage about Charles Young. It reads, Young led a pursuit of the retreating Vialistas and a running fight until the horses and men of the 10th were overcome by exhaustion. They picked up the trail the next morning, but the bandits had separated and moved into different areas. This was the first documented occasion in which U.S. troops used machine guns in a coordinated assault led by Charles Young. So we see an officer who's not a, only a diplomat, but a, must have been a brave soldier to, uh, to attack on horseback, pistols blazing, just like we hear about in the Old West against the Mexican revolutionaries. And it's an interesting period because the Mexican government was in such disarray. They wanted to say that, you know, areas of northern Mexico, Chihuahua, Sonora, were safe. Uh, but we know because of the raid on Columbus and the earlier San Isabel massacre of the mining engineers that it was far from safe. And what was happening is that the punitive expedition probably rode almost 1,500 miles south into Mexico as far as Para. And then in um, February of 1917, they had to return because Pancho Villa was nowhere to be found. They never did have contact with him. He'd actually been wounded earlier about the beginning of the punitive expedition, was in hiding. And so they were running around. The Mexicans at the time were very much opposed to the Americans being there. And so what was happening during the punitive expedition is the Mexicans were burning everything in front of the Americans as they rode further and further and further into Mexico. There was nothing to eat. So Pershing had to establish a supply line from El Paso into Mexico, stretching hundreds and hundreds of miles to get them food. The first means of transportation for the Buffalo Soldiers and the other units was touring cars. They look like uh, limousines now, you know, uh, convertible limousines now. And of course, they broke down very quickly because the roads in Mexico were not the best at this particular time in history. And so they now had to deliver everything on muleback. And as a consequence, they were very, very tight on supplies getting to the soldiers as they move further into Mexico. So finally, after uh, much frustration, several different battles, they began to retreat in February of uh, 1917 back into the United States. Young had first gotten there in April of 1916 and had been there ever since, along with other units of the American military. And the reason that they started to retreat, which is one of the other narratives that's very exciting, is that there was a battle uh, just south and west of El Paso at a place called Carrizal. And in Carrizal, what had happened is Pershing had a line of soldiers stretching south from El Paso all the way into Mexico, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And as they retreated back in the United States, they uh, recreated this route that they'd already established for safety. But they were afraid that because of the stretched out line of soldiers way into Mexico, that troops from the Carranza government would attack them in a weak point and destroy their supply line and strand the soldiers in Mexico. And to avoid this, 
they were going to have to do scouts from this line of attack that they had established in 1916 and look on both sides, east and west, to make sure there were no large contingents of Mexican troops who could attack and destroy their supply line. And so about oh, late 1916, they decided to do a scout under a three officers, Captain Boyd, Captain Adair, and Captain Lieutenant Moray, in charge of troops of the 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers. And they were ordered to ride east to a place called Villa Ahumada. And between Villa Ahumada and Carrizal, there was a group of soldiers who had already dug in. There may have been as many as 500. The Buffalo Soldiers numbered about one-fifth of that group. And they were riding into a city, a village, that had been fortified. Remember, we're on the verge of World War I. So what you have is a city in Mexico, just south of the border, manned by probably as many as 500 Mexican troops with trenches, barbed wire, and machine guns. Pershing has told Captain Boyd to scout to see if there are Mexican troops in the area, but to avoid contact at all costs. Captain Boyd, being the hot-headed person that he was, decided, no, he's not going to do that. He's going to ride through Carrizal to Via Ahumada to see if there are larger contingents of troops. And Colonel Gomez, the commander of Mexican troops at Carrizal, said, you're not coming through here. And Captain Boyd said, yes, I am. So he charged the traditional cavalry charge on horseback into trenches and machine guns, which never seemed to work and was given up very early on in World War I. Uh, remember, this is just before World War I. And, of course, the Buffalo soldiers are routed. Several of them are killed, and 23 of them are captured at Carrizal. Uh, they retreat back to the lines. Pershing has to report this defeat to President Wilson and his cabinet. And then a very interesting thing occurs. What happens at this particular point is that Wilson, who, remember, is trying to avoid at all costs going to war, in Europe with Germany and doesn't want a two-front war with Mexico, says to the Carranza government, unless you release those 23 soldiers from the Buffalo soldiers immediately, we're going to have an all-out invasion of Mexico. And the Mexicans, of course, realizing that this is serious business all of a sudden, uh, not that it hasn't been up to this point because they're in the middle of a revolution, say, okay, and they release the Buffalo soldiers within several days. What's striking about that story is that you have Woodrow Wilson, who's a very staunch advocate of doing what he wants to do. Remember, at this particular point in his administration, he's just been elected, you have women protesting outside the White House for the right to vote. He walks by them every day and ignores them because he doesn't want to give women the right to vote. So he's not doing anything he doesn't want to do. At this particular time, Wilson is trying to avoid World War I in Europe. And yet he declares all-out invasion of Mexico unless these 23 black soldiers are released, and they are. And it exemplifies at the time the high respect that Pershing and President Wilson and his cabinet had for these black soldiers who had served their country for so long. Going back to our theme of indemnity, gratitude, and reward. And because of this act, we're getting closer to reaching indemnity in terms of the Buffalo Soldiers during the punitive expedition. 
you know, as we go into the next two years, we'll, we'll, we'll still be current in terms of talking about the punitive expedition, about Charles Young, about the Buffalo Soldiers in Mexico at this particular time. It's a particularly interesting topic because immigration is so powerful a topic, even now. And the way we treat those who protect us in times of crisis is going to be very interesting to see, just as how the Buffalo Soldiers were treated by the Wilson administration during the same particular period of time. Because we as Americans always seem to want protection when we need it, but we don't want the soldiers around when we don't need them. Whether they be the soldiers who are on active duty or whether they be the soldiers who are veterans, we tend not to treat them as well as we could when the guns aren't firing. But when the wars start, when the border's unprotected, when we're being attacked, then all of a sudden they're important to us. And I think that's the relevance of this story of the Buffalo Soldiers in the punitive expedition. We're, again, Americans facing some of the same decisions and some of the same need to give indemnity to those who protect us. And if I may, I'd just like to talk about some of the people who helped me this year in my research and give a shout out to uh, John Covington, Frank Bothwell. We've done reenactments throughout the year. Uh, my friends uh, Chuck and Mary Graff, Barbie and Williams, who have also helped me with my research, and of course the people at the Tucson Presidio Trust for Historic Preservation who are always great supporters of my historical research here in Arizona, even though they're studying a, a particularly different period. But I really appreciate them. And I particularly appreciate the service of the people of the past. Whenever I tell these stories, I get the chill because I remember what sacrifices they made to help us be safe and how we always have to appreciate that because sometimes we forget what people are doing in order to bring us here to have these conversations in safety. Well, I can't wait to come back next year. Uh, the story for next year between us, Amanda, is the uh, last major Indian battle on the continental United States at Bear Valley, just west of Nogales, between the Buffalo Soldiers and the Yaqui. And I'm hoping to have much more contact with the Yaqui because in that particular incident, uh, there were 13 Yaquis who were captured. One was wounded very seriously and died the next day. But one, a young man, was only 11 years old. This is 1918, hmm? uh, 100 years next year. And he probably lived into his 50s. So somebody who is alive today knew this young man and knew his story. And for us as historians, first-hand accounts are golden. But if we can get a second-hand account that close, we're really still digging deep. And I think historians like myself always look for those kinds of stories. So look for that story next year. We'll come in. We'll talk about the Battle of Bear Valley between the Buffalo Soldiers and the Yaqui. Hopefully we'll have some Yaqui perspective to give us a sense of the complete history of Arizona because sometimes I feel we really leave out the Native American perspective. And I'm really striving to bring in the Native American perspective on this story because the interesting twist in the story is that the Indians were captured. They were tried for weapons violations. There were 13 of them, and they had 13 weapons. When you think of that time in history, everybody had a weapon, so I guess they belonged to them. But nonetheless, the judge found them guilty, but then uh, gave them over to the Buffalo Soldiers, and they became um, servants and um, uh, workers for the Buffalo Soldiers who had captured them. The Mexican government sent a request to the American government to send them to Mexico 
because they were in rebellion in Mexico because the Mexicans were trying to exterminate the Yaqui because they wanted their land in central Mexico. And the judge says to them, we've already tried them. Under our laws, it would be double jeopardy to send them to you. And it's an interesting twist on a story in which most of the time we hear about the suppression of Native American rights. And in this instance, there wasn't the suppression so much as there was the support of their rights as Americans. And I'd really like to find out more about that story from the Yaqui perspective and then tell it from the two perspectives because our history usually comes from the one perspective of the Buffalo Soldiers or the Cavalry rather than the Native Americans. Do you have any upcoming events where you'll be speaking? Yeah, I'm trying to move on, Amanda. You know that I've been a lecturer for several years in our contact with each other. And now this year, I'm more interested in talking to people who talk to other people. So my next upcoming event is April 24th at the uh, Tucson Museum of Art. Uh, I'm negotiating at this point to do a, a lecture for their docents on how to show the African-American history through art. And I'll be bringing in several pieces of art from uh, Arizona African history to show them and give them an illustration of how you can tell stories through art. Because an object is just an object until it has a story and a character. And so I'm going to try to help the docents realize that in their work in the Tucson Museum of Art, they also should be telling stories that have character and subject matter as well as art. Otherwise, it's just a painting on a wall. Granted, you can appreciate the painting for what it is, but when you have a story, then you have more. A sunflower is just a sunflower, unless the artist cut off his ear painting. You've been listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today has been Dr. Michael Angs. He's a retired educator from Pima Community College and Northern Arizona University, a longtime Tucsonan and a lifetime historian who turned his attention to people of African descent in the Southwest and Mexico in 1983. And I'm always amazed how you continue to find new stories or shed light on old stories. I think sometimes we think history is history, and you really make it come alive. History is an adventure and a romance. And for those who would like to study history, you don't sit in the classroom. You go out and you meet people. You go out and you hike. You go out and you look at things, and then history comes alive for you.